Hello everyone, welcome to podcast number 14. My name is Naaman Jokranson and my co-host is Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. A big thank you to our last guest, Kristen Williams, who talks about BRCA screening and the charity BRCA Chat, uh, which she co-founded. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go back and take a listen. Uh, so we're pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Will Kennard, who will be discussing sexual dysfunction for men and his PhD research. Welcome, Will. Hi, thanks, Naaman. Hi, Joe. Hi. So, Will, can you tell us a bit about your current role and how you got there? Uh, yes, yeah, so, um, yeah, I had a slightly unusual route into radiotherapy, and this is a uh, second career for me. Um, so, previously, for about 10 to 15 years, I was a newspaper journalist. Um, I worked in local papers, national papers, and spent about 10 years um, in Fleet Street doing editing roles. Um, but I got to the point where I'd kind of had enough of that and decided I wanted to do something completely different. Um, so started looking at various NHS careers and quite quickly settled on therapeutic radiography. Um, it was the polar opposite of what I've been doing. It was sort of active on the feet all day, meeting new people, um, which was all the things I'd want. Um, so yeah, I retrained at the uh, postgraduate course at London Southbank. Um, I um, yeah, got my first job at University College London Hospitals as a uh, treatment floor radiographer. And right from the start, I was interested in men's health and prostate cancer in particular. Um, in fact, when I was training at Guys and Tommy's, they had a prostate specialist there, Phil Reynolds, who's um, now a consultant up in Catterbridge. Um, and I knew that was the kind of role that I wanted to go into eventually. Um, uh, quite early on uh, at UCLA, I actually got the chance to work with the prostate team and I was in pre-treatment, so learned a lot there and got to know all the urology doctors. And then probably one of the key things that got me interested in sexual dysfunction was uh, a while later attending a prostate cancer training day where one of the speakers was Dr. Isabel White, who I'm sure lots of people will know. She's a psychosexual therapist uh, and a nurse by background and she does a lot of work with cancer patients. Um, and that was really my inspiration. She was the first person I'd heard speaking so openly and clearly about the impact of sexual problems on men with prostate cancer and this uh, huge unmet need for support. Um, and I think around that time, she was also helping to write new guidelines to support men with erectile dysfunction. Um, so there's someone actively doing something to change things. Um, so yeah, that really inspired me and it was around this time that I was looking at doing my MSc research. Uh, so I decided to focus on this area and interviewed former radiotherapy patients about their experience of sexual problems about two, three years on from treatment. Um, and that gave me an incredible insight into the impact that sexual problems have on men. Um, I found myself sitting in this little side room in the radiotherapy department um, with men who were in tears talking about the breakdown of their relationships, their loss of self-esteem, and a really wide range of side effects that went beyond just the erectile dysfunction. Um, so yes, yeah, so I got a really first-hand experience of how devastating this can be and the, how the impact goes way beyond um, just function and goes you know, right to the core of their whole identity and persona. Um, so I yeah, carried on working in radiotherapy. I spent a bit of time in uh, Gamma Knife uh, down the road uh, from here at the National Hospital of Neurology and Neurosurgery. Um, and then the urology specialist role came up here at UCLH. Um, it was set up in a slightly unusual way in that the post was funded by one of the urology consultants, uh, Professor Heather Payne. Um, 
So she's, you know, really well known, internationally renowned urologist, professor of prostate oncology, but she's also a real champion of radiographers, um, as well as other professions. Um, and she wanted to set this role up for some time, but it hadn't happened for various reasons. So yeah, eventually she decided to do it herself and she funded the position with money from her research charity, uh, Radiotherapy Advances and Research. Um, so I went to meet Heather before applying and she told me about her vision for the role. Her, and she was so enthusiastic and so encouraging. Yeah, I, I really knew that this was the job that I wanted to get. Um, and then, yeah, so after, after getting the position, she, she basically said she really wanted to encourage my research interest and pushed me straight away to start looking at sexual dysfunction. And yeah, so that's how I came to be in yeah, my current role as a urology research and development uh, radiographer. Uh, so it's a mix of research and clinical work, but the, uh, yeah, the big focus is on uh, sexual problems related to prostate cancer treatment. Very interesting. It's very nice to hear like such a diverse background. So I'm a mature student, technically, having done a different sort of, well, my fiance always says it's not a career because it's only for a, a year, but it still counts as a career, I think. <laughs> what did you do? Uh, biomedical sciences. Um, absolutely hated it. I, I can't even, <laughs> I just, I just couldn't, couldn't do it. <laughs> so, well, obviously, it really interesting career pathway today. Um, and obviously, as you do, hosting a podcast, you like to do a bit of digging about your guests and what they've been up to. And I have to say, it's really nice that you are well published, um, largely because I do think it's so important that everything that we do do within therapeutic radiography and radiotherapy, it you know, having that evidence base really can help us change practice. I think, you know, it's okay to make changes locally, but having the quality of the research that comes under your role and having all of those skills and knowledge to be able to publish, I think is so important to make changes. When I was doing some reading, I think, although I obviously have the background around um, some of the statistics and things, it still did surprise me that 94% of men, while they're on the androgen deprivation therapy experience, erectile dysfunction, I knew it was was something that a lot of men experience, but I really didn't expect the statistics to be as high as they are, mm. um, which is obviously why your role is so important within um, within where you work. But what are you doing at the moment around some of the research? I, I you know, I'm interested to learn. I think I believe you're doing your PhD. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so. Um... Yeah, so my, my main research focuses on how we can improve sexual dysfunction support for men with advanced prostate cancer. So just those people, the ones who are on long-term androgen deprivation. Um, I mean, if, if anyone listening who doesn't work in urology, it's probably important to say there are a huge number of treatment options for men with advanced prostate cancer these days. There's a whole new generation of hormone treatments, there's chemotherapy, radionuclide options, you know, stereotactic treatment for metastases. Um, also awareness is better, testing is better, imaging is better, so we're picking up things, you know, sometimes earlier. And what it all means is that men are living for a long time, or men may live for a long time with advanced disease. Um, yeah. You know, men with stage 4 disease will now live average of, you know, five to seven years, and it's not uncommon for men to be coming, you know, back to clinic for 10, even up to 20 years with advanced disease. Um, mm -hmm. So, yes, yeah, so the quality of life is really important. Um, um, and, and it means we need to think a lot harder about 
making sure improvements in overall survival are matched by improvements in quality of life. Um, and the most common side effect is, yeah, of prostate cancer treatments is sexual dysfunction. Um, mm -hmm. But the, um, the problem is a lot of the guidance and nearly all the research tends to focus on supporting men with localised or locally advanced disease. Um, so they look at the best way to give help after surgery or after radiotherapy or after hormone treatments. Um, and these approaches are very often focused on erectile rehabilitation, uh, so helping men get their erections back so they can have penetrative sex. Um, and the, the problem with this approach for men with advanced disease is that there is no after treatment and treatment doesn't stop. So like you say, these men are on hormone-based therapy for the rest of their lives. And mm -hmm. yeah, you know, 94%, I mean, I don't know who the 6% are who don't get the side effects either. Basically everyone, if you're on androgen preparation, you've got no libido and you know you've got sexual side effects. Mm -hmm. um, and it means that, the, and that's the main cause of their sexual dysfunction. It's never going to be removed or taken away. Um, but if our definition of sexual recovery is regaining erections after treatment, then we're not even, you know, really giving these men any hope of getting their sex parts back. Um, yeah, so in my work, um, in fact, I should say it's not just me, there's a whole host of brilliant people working on this too. So it's to look at what should we should do to help these men, how should our approach be different to help men on long-term hormone blockade. Um, so yeah, so we've drawn up a series of projects. Um, we want to get the views of clinicians, of patients, we'll look at all the evidence, um, get expert views, and then the aim is to finally draw all this together, see if we can uh, make some recommendations and work on some guidelines. Um, uh, and what was good, once we had that together, we were able to uh, go to one of the pharmaceutical companies, uh, Stellas, who make the drug enzalutamide, which is one of these, uh, the new generation of hormone treatments. And we were successful in getting the research grant to then fund the work. Um, uh, and in fact, it was only at that point that we started talking about making this a PhD. Actually, the idea for the project came first, and then it became a doctorate, which I think was actually quite a nice way of doing it because it made, mm -hmm. you know, it made all the work have a real clinical focus, a real focus on outcomes. Um, and but yeah, then once we'd done that, that in turn then opened up other funding routes. We were able to get support from our, our local UCH Cancer Fund and other various bits and pieces to um, you know secure the whole thing long term. Um, yeah, another really important step for us has been this year is linking up Prostate Cancer UK, the charity, um, and their support's been fantastic. So I've joined their clinical champions program whereby they support you with a clinical improvement program for 18 months or so. Um, and that's really helped raise the profile of the work. It's given us access to a really big pool of resources. Um, I've also had some really brilliant patient involvement and patient input about, you know, asking them what we should be doing, what should we focus on, what the questions we should be asking. Um, and in fact, we've now got a patient representative who's kind of part of the inner circle, you're part of the project team, um, which has been great because, you know, you get something from them that you don't get from anyone else. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'd recommend that for anyone to take a similar. Um, so yeah, so that's the plan. So works yeah underway. We've had some publications that you've yeah, yeah you've seen, and then we've got more in progress at the moment, and yeah more more projects planned for next year as well. Perfect. And have have you come across any barriers? Because although it sounds amazing, you've yeah. made it sound quite seamless, and I know <laughs> for a fact that would not be the case. 
So did you come across challenges and barriers that you have to overcome? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, you're kind of doing this kind of thing. You're slightly off patch when, you know, from radiotherapy. So it's yeah, you very much kind of outside your comfort zone. So it was all about, you know, making new contacts and meeting new people and establishing new relations. But I mean, it's been, I've, I was amazed actually, the, um, you know, the enthusiasm for, from people from, you know, all different disciplines, you know, we've got a real multidisciplinary team. Um, and that took a while to establish and set up, but, um, but now we've got it. Yeah, you know, we've got such a great team working on this that, um, yeah, I'll say to other people, you know, don't be afraid to, um, you know, go out there and start meeting people because, um, yeah, they've been very, you know, open, very generous with their time. Yeah. I suppose yeah. just a quick follow-up question, just for anyone listening who might be new into research and wants to get into it. Um, yeah, with the barriers and stuff, when you originally started, is it something now looking back on it, you think, God, oh, that definitely was the right thing for me to do? Yeah, I mean, you learn so much along the way. And you can, which I think it's really, it's why it's really important to, um, you know, make also make links with other people doing similar things, even if it's, you know, different subject focus. But, you know, you can spend weeks trying to work out how to do something that you could have done in five minutes if you know in the right way. So, yeah, I think it's really important to, um, you know, learn from other people, just, you know, make connections, you know, within radiotherapy, with other groups and things. Um, it's lucky there's a few of us now at uh, UCLH who are doing um, PhDs. I mean, my colleague, Sarah Wickers, who's, um, you know, been doing this longer than me, and I've had the benefit of, you know, she's able to tell me, you know, all the shortcuts, and, you know, I often go to her, ask her for help, and... Um, so yeah, I'll definitely say, you know, making contact with other people doing similar things is, uh, yeah, really, really useful. It's having that peer support, isn't it? I think mm. that can be really beneficial. And sometimes yeah. it is about that confidence building. And when you're doing it all together, at least you've got peers that you can kind of access that support from. So yeah, yeah. don't underestimate the networking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, so Will, through, through your research, just going into another statistic that we spoke about before, um, it's just to do with how many oncologists do discuss uh, sexual side effects with their patients. What was the statistic that you came across? Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so one of the first projects we did was a survey of clinicians at the British Urooncology Group conference. Um, so uh, BUG is yeah, it's a national body. It's made up largely of medical and clinical oncologists. But there's also some radiologists in there. Um, and we asked them about their current practice in dealing with sexual dysfunction. So not just advanced disease, but all stages. And yeah, so on that subject, the um, I mean, first the, um, the the key finding was that the vast majority said they didn't think it was their role to manage sexual dysfunction. So just 11% uh, said they thought it was their job. Um, the rest said they thought it was primarily down to specialist sexual dysfunction uh, clinics or CMSs, maybe a few other things in there. Um, but then interestingly, we, we went on to then ask them if they routinely referred men onto those clinics and only a minority said they did. So there's a situation where they're not managing the problems, but they also aren't referring the men on to people who can. Um, and secondly, we also found there were big differences in the way clinicians dealt with patients according to their disease state. So we asked them those questions about 
when they discuss things, what they discuss, what help they offered. But and in every category, they were less likely to offer support to men with advanced disease. So less likely to discuss it before treatment, take a baseline measurement of function, less likely to discuss after treatment, less likely to offer interventions, and less likely to refer on. Um, so yeah, we, we went on to ask them about the barrier. What were the barriers to discussing it? Um, which became a quite eye-opening. The number one reason was a lack of time. He said 80% said they, you know, didn't have enough time, and the and they were under standards busy clinics, 10-15 minutes per patient, and they're struggling to cover everything. Um, I think my issue with this would be that you know in oncology, and especially in radiotherapy, we have a lot of we spend a lot of time spending discussing bladder and bowels. You know, it's probably number one topic of discussion in radiotherapy now. Um, and it's, so it's interesting that the sexual issues are the ones that get squeezed out. It's usually the third of three that gets mentioned, you know, the last thing at any consultation, if at all. Um, so, yeah, then the, the second most common reason is patient reluctance. Um, is, yeah, the second most common is the, the biggest barrier. Um, and we often hear that men don't want to talk about it. It's not a priority. You know, save it for later. Um, and I think that's definitely true. I think the patient we... The patients we see coming through radiotherapy do have low libido due to often due to their hormone therapy. They're focused on their diagnosis, they're focused on their treatment, and sex is the last thing on their mind. Um, the trouble with this is that all the evidence shows we need to start these interventions as soon as possible to give the men the best outcomes. And you know, the longer they go without getting help, the more difficult it is in the long term. Um, uh, and also, the evidence shows that this apparent indifference to sexual problems doesn't last and by six months or a year then uh, their distress rises significantly so i think it's you know on us as healthcare professionals to try and think of ways to engage men who might be reluctant to discuss the issue and we need to make them see what the benefits of getting help are even if you know it's not the first thing on their mind at that point um and then, yeah, various other barriers that came up, um, advanced age, so the perception that older men weren't interested in talking about sex. Um, embarrassment, a lot of people said it's embarrassing, you know, it's embarrassing for the patient, it's embarrassing for the clinician to talk about. Um, cultural, racial and ethnic dif differences also came up quite high. Um, and also uh, clinicians saying a lack of training, a lack of understanding, so maybe not having the confidence to um, take these things on. Um, but yeah, I think you know, overall what the survey shows is there was a real issue with men accessing support when they're being managed in the oncological setting. So men are far less likely to be offered any kind of intervention. And that's even worse if the man happens to have advanced disease. Yeah, so it's quite, quite a lot of differences really, isn't it? I think in my experience, I've always tried to discuss it. Some patients say, not a priority. Some will say, oh, well, that's never coming back or you know it's never worked anyway it's not just because of the cancer kind of always the similar themes of oh well you say you can do something but we'll have to wait and see after treatment yeah. i think yeah it's it's difficult and it is something as much as i like to ask and see if they want to you know well, try and make an environment where they want to open up as you said it does matter kind of who's asking i think some patients might find it a bit uncomfortable talking to another man about it whereas some would prefer to talk to a man about it so yeah. it, it really varies um yeah well, do you know, that's, that's one of the things we've, um, so to kind of complement that work, we're about just about to send out another survey to prostate cancer patients to get their views about provision in the UK. 
Um, again, working with the lovely Peter Cross at Kent UK, and we're going to ask them, yeah, about three things. So, firstly, what they experience in terms of side effects, so not just erection problems, but other physical side effects, such that people talk about probably even less, such as penis shrinkage, dry ejaculation, uh, continence during sexual activity, um, and also the psychological and the psychosexual side effects, you know, the effect they have on their self-perception, their masculinity, their relationships. Um, and then we're going to go on and ask them about what help they were offered, what was their experience, you know, who spoke to them, did they raise it, did you raise it, who, you know, who talked about it. Um, but then, yeah, go on and ask them, you know, well, what do you, what would, what would it look like ideally? You know, would you rather speak to a man, would you rather speak to a woman, do you rather speak to a doctor, a nurse, a radiographer, what's the best time to discuss it, is it before, is it after, just to try and, um, yeah, find out what men, you know, really get their views and put that at the heart of it. Um, and we're also, yeah, once we've got that information, we want to break it down and have a look at who's getting help and who isn't. So not only look at the different disease stages, but also look at sexuality. You know, are, are gay men being given appropriate advice? Um, are there differences uh, according to the man's race uh, or age? Or, you know, are there differences geographically around the country? And, you know, look at various other factors. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that will that will put their, you know, put the other side of the story from the patient's perspective about, who's being told what about sexual dysfunction. Um, and then um, also with that, we're going to do some policies of work, talking to men in, with advanced disease in depth, um, because there's so little research on sexuality in advanced cancer generally, and virtually nothing on sexuality in advanced prostate cancer. So we really want to uh, find out more to feed into the work to make sure yeah, their voice is vital, you know, the heart of yeah, what, we're, what we're doing as well. Mm. I mean, quite a few patients that I've spoken to, um, I think since being sort of a radiographer, um, they've said that, you know, they wouldn't have gone for treatment had they known they may never get their erections back. Um, yeah. I suppose, is that something you've come across? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's more common than people realise. Um, I sometimes do CPD sessions with our some of the treatment radiographers and the review team in my department um, about this subject. And in there... I include a list of things that patients have said directly to me about sexual problems. And, I, and it's usually that bit, they kind of, they just sit up a bit more and they, I think some of them find it quite shocking. Um, and it also hits home because, you know, these are comments from, you know, you know how we imagine a prostate patient, they're jolly and they're upbeat, they bring us a box of chocolates at the end. Yeah. Um, and mm. then, you know, I give them the examples of those same men that, that they've been treating come back later and they, yeah, they say, I wish I hadn't had the treatment. Um, they say, they say, I wish I was dead. They say, um, life isn't worth living anymore. Um, I've, told, I've asked my partner to leave me. I don't feel like a man. You know, my life's diminished. And it goes on and on. And it's really heartbreaking. Um, and yeah, this is one of the main findings from the project where I interviewed men um, after treatment. Um, and it's when you ask them about the effects of treatment, they often they don't mention the direct physical side effects. They mentioned the uh, the indirect effect it's had on their lives and their relationship problems, their loss of intimacy, their loss of self-esteem. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think it has a, a yeah, really profound effect on men's lives. Yes. I suppose the work you're looking into, it's kind of building all the evidence for a more holistic approach. Mm. I think it, it's nice. So it's really good to see. I think I've, I've found it very sad sometimes when patients are so deflated, just 
I mean, some people, sex might not be the biggest part of their life, but for actually when you lose it sometimes for patients, that's what makes it worse. It doesn't have to be sex. It could be, you know, having no saliva left for a head and neck patient. It's the same, similar kind of thing where you're losing all that control and something you're used to. Yeah. Um, I suppose... it's, and, and it's, you know, it's an, obviously it's an issue for, you know, the prostate's a sexual organ, but it's, you know, I don't think there's really a treatment site where this isn't an issue. You know, like you say, head and neck, whether it's, you know, breast cancer or, you know, it's, I think there, there's not many treatment sites where, where you know, there isn't going to affect relationships and people are sexual. I think that really leads on as well to the need nationally for late effects clinics mm. and also rehabilitation. And obviously, I know we've talked about the need for prehabilitation and to start interventions really early. But I think having the evidence as well to almost go back to service provision to go, this is what patients are experiencing. And just because we've never recorded that data, it's really difficult. I know I'm... Um, I'm sitting now on the um, Cancer Rehabilitation Alliance group and it is, it's shocking to see some of the, the conditions that patients have and no, have no interventions and are going through life with long-term side effects that are so debilitating, mm. um, but nobody has ever necessarily recorded it and they are getting you know, put from pillar to post without any real help and support. Um, and that goes for all the sites specifically. And I think hopefully now the work that we're doing and more engagement from therapeutic radiographers to recognise the impact of the treatment that they're delivering. Um, hopefully we will see more um, systemic change, but it, it needs feeding back, doesn't it? Because unfortunately it does come down to funding. Um, and I know that's always the, the kind of excuse that we give, but there really does need to be investment in services to support these patients. Yeah, I think like you say, it's, it's been really good. The um, There's been a real move from within radiotherapy to do this, um, you know, across lots of treatments. Like, and I know obviously you've had, you know, people like Lauren on here and, you know, the groundbreaking work that she's been doing with Heather Nisbet up in Oxford. And yeah, lots of people, you know, around mm -hmm. the country doing similar things. And um, yeah. Yeah, I've got colleagues who, you know, looking really keen to um, uh, push a late effects clinic. And uh, yeah, yeah, so it's good to see that coming from within. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose coming on quite nicely, well, um, what sort of support is available to male patients that you've seen and to follow it up after that? I mean, what would you like to see in practice? Um, so in terms of what support is available, um, it's not... It's not straightforward to answer. According to our survey, the 92% of clinicians said they had access to specialist sexual dysfunction services. Um, and this chimes with the National Prostate Cancer Audit, which I think showed 90% had access. Um, I mean, here at UCLH, we've got a brilliant world-class andrology department. And, you know, once men get to those services, there's a huge range of options. There's, you know, medications, injections, pumps, creams. Um, as well as on the other side, you know, counselling, psychosexual support. Um, but the problem is what clinicians say they have access to doesn't match up with what patients tell us they're getting. So only a third of patients who get who go through external beam radiotherapy say they are offered any intervention at all for sexual dysfunction. Um, so clearly there's a problem with patients accessing those services. They appear to be there, but they're not getting to them. Um, so I think, you know, what 
what we need to see in terms of radiotherapy as a minimum is that the you know the, the conversation has become routine. Um, we need to mention it every point of the pathway. Um, like we said, these men can often be very difficult to engage. The more times we speak to them, you know, it's often the third, fourth, fifth time that you ask them that they say they want some help after all. Um, so it's important, you know, we as radiographers talk about this as much as we do, bowels and bladders. You know, staff don't have to have all the answers. They just need, you know, some basic knowledge and then be able to signpost the help, um, you know, when they're talking to patients at CT or first aid chats or in review clinics. Um, you know, you don't know, you don't need to know how to do a colonoscopy to ask a man about his bowels or catheterise to ask about a bladder. So um, we should feel equally comfortable talking about sexual problems. Um, well, I'm just asking, yeah. I'm, I'm just sorry to interrupt. I'm just thinking from a therapeutic radiographer's perspective, where would mm. they go to find out where their local services are? or Who should they speak to to be able to find out how to refer patients? Well, they should speak to their local clinician. So, um, you know, if if as it, as it seems these there, there are access um, to help, then yeah, the first port of call I'd say is you know go and speak to their consultant, or you could speak to the CNS team. But um, but yeah, you know, even if they're not the person who would manage it, they they should know um, yeah where they would be referred, how they'd be referred on. Yeah. Just in case anyone doesn't know, clinical nurse specialist. That's what a CNS is. Sorry. No, it's okay. Um, I suppose. Um... Yeah, I was going to say. I, th I think in wider sense beyond radiotherapy, I think we also need to, you know, tell men about how profound these these side effects are, um, because some, like like you said, Joe, some men get bladder side effects, some get bowel side effects, but almost all of them, if they're on hormone therapy, will have sexual problems, and almost none of them will recover their previous level of sexual function. Um, so, firstly, they need to know that which seems really basic, but we know clearly that people don't get help. Um, and secondly, if they're not going to make a full recovery, then we need to help them deal with that loss and cope with that reduced function. So yes, do everything we can to restore erections, but equally we need to focus on counselling, psychosexual interventions that help them come to terms with that, um, You know, help men and their partners re-establish and redefine their intimate relationships, things like non-penetrative sex, sex toys, education. Um, you know, patients have said to me, you know, the real game changer was when they found out you don't need an erection to have an orgasm. Um, and again, I don't know how many men find that out. Um, and these these are all things that are obviously just as important to men's well-being as any medical intervention to restore function. Um, I mean, if people are interested, there's some really good former and current prostate patients who talk about this you know, far more eloquently than I can. Um, there's people like, you know, if anyone gets a chance to hear someone like Steve Allen or Tony Collier or Elvin Box, who were all sort of, you know, they're all on social media and things. Um, they really should because they give such a complete, you know, no holds barred account of what their experience is and the psychological adjustment adjustment they needed to, to make to re-establish their intimate relationships. So, um, so, so, yeah, I think, you know, we need to discuss the subject more and we um, really need to discuss it in more depth. There's, yeah. um, there's a really good guide as well, isn't there, for healthcare professionals supporting men with erectile dysfunction. I think um, yeah. it's published by Prostate Cancer UK uh, with Macmillan 
Um, yeah. And I know you mentioned um, White et al as well were part of yeah. that. So again, we'll definitely add that to the to the podcast resource list because I think that will be really helpful to people to have access to that. Yeah, definitely. They brought out two publications at once. So one, yeah, but by uh, by Isabel Whitehorn after David therapy and hormone treatment, and then one from Professor Mike Kirby, who's actually part of the team on this project for um, after uh, uh, treatment after surgery. So um, yeah, they're they're really good. Yeah. Hmm. So just a quick one. So I know Will was talking about sort of getting that conversation going early. You were telling us earlier about something you do with your. Uh, first year students as well weren't you yeah so um anyone who knows me knows that i'm quite dramatic um so i use my theatrical skills to essentially um do some role play scenarios and obviously we want to ensure that um our students and students across the country have access to service users and patients and that they do get to have those conversations um but I know that something that I do as part of a role play is to essentially ask students quite personal questions. So I will ask them just off the cuff straight away in a session, can I have anal sex whilst I'm, whilst I'm having radiotherapy? And it's almost like the room goes silent, people look shocked, they look uncomfortable. You know, you can definitely see people looking around the room thinking, how can I get out of here? Um, I really don't want to look Joe in the eyes. Um, but I think the reason I do that um, is not for my own enjoyment, I promise. It is actually just to start to break down some of the barriers and get people to realise that they will and should be asked questions like this. Um, and, you know, some of it is just around body language, how we react to patients asking us questions that maybe we weren't expecting or that we ourselves find awkward. And it is breaking down stereotypical barriers. So I know, Will, you were talking about libido. And I think, you know, there is this kind of stereotypical image of, you know, if someone's libido is low, they're not going to be interested in, mm. in sex. So should we talk about sexual dysfunction? You know, is it high on their priorities? And everything you've said tonight has highlighted again and again, yes, we need to. And, you know, as therapeutic radiographers, as other allied health professions working across the oncology pathway, we're the ones that could ultimately make that impact to patients and ask those questions. We know as part of the work that we've done for prehabilitation and rehabilitation around smoking cessation, we're already starting to see the impact of that on practice. Um, and so sexual function shouldn't be any different. And I think that's why the work that you're doing is so amazing and beneficial. And I can already see such a huge impact that is going to have to patients' lives. Um, and I, I really do hope that people use this opportunity um, to really go away and read some of the research that you've produced and continue to hunt down all the work that you're producing, because I, I really think it's beneficial. Mm. I think I think you're right. You know, it's just about. You know, the more you talk about it, the more you get used to it. You know, I talk yeah. about this all the time. I talk about it every day, and you know, the people I sit with get completely bored of it. But you know, it's just <laughs> once you once you normalise it, then it's not a big issue for you. You know, people initially might find it embarrassing to talk about bowels, and you know, yeah. show people a Bristol stool chart. But you know, once you've done it ten times, you you don't think about it at all. So oh, know, I put that on a cake wheel. That that one year. <laughs> <laughs> Remind Needless to say, I was not the best baker. 
<laughs> so will thinking about kind of what what's going to happen next in your career what you yeah. know what are the plans post phd what are you hoping to kind of produce and and go into um in terms of your next career pathway so so this this is obviously going to be taking my time taking up my time for a while to come yeah and uh in fact i'm, I'm talking with about plans actually for after you know this research <laughs> my radio therapy managers at the moment so it's not quite settled but what what i am keen to do is maintain that research element even after the project um yeah, yeah. so you know however the role develops i'd really like to reinvent some time to carry this on as we all should um you know, we all know about the four pillars of advanced practice and all that sort of stuff and the need for research. But I think it's often for a lot of people, for all of us, it's, it's difficult. That's the bit that, you know, people sometimes struggle with. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a challenge for all of us, you know, how we ensure as clinical staff we're engaged in research. Um, I know, like, looking at you, Joe, and all your colleagues at Sheffield Hallam, where you're, you know, you're producing so much great outstanding work there. Um, and what we need to do is encourage that same ethos in the clinical setting. Um, I mean, I'm really lucky. I've got managers who really see the value in research. And in fact, they're really pushing to promote this. At the moment, actually, UCL, uh, the university and UCLH radiotherapy department are working on plans to set up what I think will be the country's first therapeutic radiography doctoral school at UCL. Amazing. Um, so the idea is to encourage clinical radiographers to take on PhDs. Um, you know, so people stay in their jobs. You know, they don't take time out, they don't become academics, but they stay as clinical um, academics. Um, so yeah, my managers in radiotherapy, and Azima Haji and Laura Allington are working with um, Professor Andy Nisbet and Professor Gary Royal at UCL, um, as well as you know the societies involved as well, and they're looking at setting this up in the next couple of years. Um, I don't think things aren't con quite confirmed yet, but hopefully, you know, once established, it will help people like us, if, you know, access PhD research opportunities, you know, access really great supervisors, apply for grants, secure funding, and, you know, take radiographer-led clinical research to another level. Um, I mean, it's, re it's really interesting talking to people like um, Gary Royal um, and Andy Nisbet. I mean, they're both brilliant world-class academics, but they come from the physics background and they kind of have an independent perspective on us, the outside looking in. And I think they see the untapped potential of radiographers. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, Gary Royal described to me how he, you know, he often sits in multidisciplinary meetings and there'll be doctors there and there'll be academics there and there's physicists, bacinatrists, and there'll be, you know, there'll be one radiographer in the corner who, you know, doesn't say much at first, usually, uh, you know, waits to be asked for their opinion. But then, you know, when they do, they offer an insight that really cuts, you know, right to the heart, you know, gives a gives a perspective that no one else has got. Um, and I think he's right that sometimes, you know, as a profession, we sometimes lack a bit of confidence in, um, you know, don't realise what our strengths are. So, um, yeah, hopefully these plans are going to get off the ground. Um, and we can you know, encourage clinical radiographers to you know, not just get involved in research, but actually lead it. And um, uh, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, it's going to take a change in mindset, I think, to, you know, people are always having to fight, aren't they, to get time to do academic work, research yeah, work. Yeah. Um, I don't know what you find, Joe, with, you know, people, clinical people you deal with, are they having to 
you know battle sometimes to um, get time in their in their week. Yeah, I I would I would definitely see the advantage of having a research radiographer or research team that are integrated really well within the radiotherapy department because a lot of it is about empowerment and also um, sharing ideas and knowledge and having someone there that you can ask saying, well, I'm thinking of doing this audit. And then someone going, well, rather than do an audit, why don't you do formal research? And I would definitely say link with your local HEIs um, because we are always looking as from an academic perspective. You know, that's what we get trained in and that's what we're there to support people with. But having that link is absolutely amazing because we struggle to access patient data and things like that when you have that at your fingertips. So doing partnership research just works it's the best of both worlds um so everything you've said but definitely empowering people to take that next Mm. step i think is really important yeah yeah i think people sometimes you know intimidated by it but i don't yeah just uh, you know start small and build up yeah yeah oh brilliant so last question will is just do you have any top tips that you would like to impart to anyone listening um, that they can take forward into their practice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, in, in terms of research, just as we've been saying, I think you know, just just get involved. You know, there's a lot of mystery around it, and people do get intimidated. But they, you needn't be. You know, start small. You know, start with audit in your department. There's often, you know, internal publications. There's things like Synergy where you can get your work. Um, you know, not everything has to be a randomised controlled trial. You can send, you know, letters to, you know, journals. They'll, you know, they get a PubMed listing and all the rest of it. Um, you know, you can sit there with your time planner. You know, what's happened to your patient profile during COVID? You know, you can you can sit down for an hour and find something interesting that's, you know, worth worth writing about. Um, but yeah, find out what's going on in your department. Just you know, volunteer yourself to be involved. Um, I definitely, you know, follow your passions, follow what you're interested in, because, you know, when you are slogging away, that's the thing that keeps you going. Um, and, yeah, and, you know, don't wait for it to happen. You know, go out and find it, you know, make your own connections. Um, you know, like with the, with the PhD, I know a lot of people look at going down the NIHR route. Um, but, you know, if you get no joy there, then, you know, there are other routes. So I haven't gone down that route. And we've got, you know, funding from all sorts of... Um, charities and things so um so yeah just you know look around there are opportunities um and then in terms of sexual dysfunction yeah i mean just basically what we said before i think just um it just inform yourself at a basic level so you know how to start a conversation you know uh, you know what these people are experiencing um yeah find out where 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 people can get help you know, locally in your department, TBOG, it's just a CMS consulting body. Um, and then, yeah, just start talking about it, first aid chats. You don't have to talk about it every day, but, you know, first aid chat, CT, review. Um, and, and yeah, I think we just need to remember that this isn't, you know, it isn't optional, it isn't an extra. If, you know, if we're talking about blood and bowels, then, um, yeah, you should, be, you should be talking about a sexual therapist too. I think to add to that for students listening, I mean, when I was a student, um, I learned the most of by going and shadowing. Um, so even not just in radiotherapy, but my best experience was actually with the palliative care team, just about communication, how it wasn't just about the agenda, it's do you just give them time and space, but 
those sort of opportunities, I think, Joe, I'm sure you agree, students, you, you can get involved with any team in the hospital, they'll have you, because you're just going to go and watch. And that's how these conversations get easier, because you've heard someone else say it. So then you know, or you might even pick up and say, actually, I could do that slightly better next time. Yeah. And that's how it kind of feeds on. And it, that's really nice. And I think what you said about research, um, I think for me, hoping to be someone like you one day as a clinical academic, um, getting into research, I think in the middle of COVID, um, for me, it was scary, but the therapeutic radiographers who have been involved in research, whether it's through a master's or they've gone down the PhD route, they're actually really supportive. And I think we've touched in a couple of podcasts now as well, just that kind of community or peer support, um, even if it's through social media. So Will, we've never met. Joe, we've still never met. Um, it's through Twitter, but we've supported each other and we're still elevating each other in a way. But like Dr. Amanda Bolstrin and Kim Meeking, they helped me loads last year just to get into it. But that's how it starts for anyone if you're 15 years down or you're a year into your, your work. It's, you know, there are people there who are help, like, more than happy to help elevate you and get you there. So... I think um, people are glad to, you know, when they've been, you know, been through it the hard way, you're pleased to, you know, tell someone that, you know, you need to have done that. You, there's, you know, there's, there's a much easier way of doing things. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's it's funny, something that, so one of our previous um, people on the podcast, Janice, who said about the lateral thinking when she's been in some of these strategy meetings, exactly as you said for the MDT, that untapped p- potential for radiographers, there is, yeah. we worked a millimetre accuracy and then we talk about bowels. So it's quite a lot a lot of change but it's 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 interesting isn't it um but no thank you very much for today well it's been really 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 interesting and i think so much good work is coming out of what you and everyone involved in this area is coming through and as joe said through the work that she's involved in with kind of prehab and the country alliance and stuff it's really exciting for everyone really to be listening into Um, thank you for um, you know having sam evans and lauren on here it's um yeah it's great to have um, so many people talking about it yeah, it's good. It's nice to hear different people's experiences, really, isn't it? So, yeah. But yeah, so thank you everyone for listening. Um, so, my name is Naaman. I'd like to give a huge thank you again to our guests, Will Kennard and co host Joe. Um, if you're utilizing this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions that we're going to post along uh, with some resources and a lot of literature that Will has probably published himself um, discussed with the podcast. And then uh, to get your CPT digital badge, please complete the form that's also there. Um, so our next guest to feature will be Charlotte Beardmore. And um, thank you, everyone. And good night. Good night. Thanks. Bye.